turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses once again, and this time for our sermon text we'll look at verses 7 through 11. Hear now the reading of God's word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray just another moment. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we are not left alone as orphans, that even... The reality that you are not with us in the flesh reminds us that you are here by the Spirit. For when you ascended, you poured out your Holy Spirit upon your church. Work through the Word of God during this time as we consider it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amazing how phrases and words in scripture become convicting. The phrase that is convicting to me in the verses that we've just read is the four times repeated phrase, you all. If you look in verse 4, that's where you come across it first, that Paul is always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And if you just stop right there and think about all who are included in you all, it may become convicting. Think about everybody who is in the room with you. Think about all the imperfect sinners that you are surrounded by, perhaps even members of your own household. 
that make up the you all of the church. And Paul doesn't just say it in verse 3. There is a concentration of that phrase you all in our text today in verses 6 through 7, where, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 8, where Paul says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all. Convicting, isn't it? You stop and think about how inclusive that term is, you all. And how Paul, thinking about a church, a church that is made up of sinners saved by grace, like this church here, you remind yourself that the occasion for letters in the New Testament was not because churches were just doing perfectly fine, but rather that certain situations and certain problems needed to be addressed, it becomes all the more convicting to read over and over the Apostle Paul saying, you all, that you all are a cause for joy, that you all are those for whom I long that you all are the ones that are in my heart. Four times in these verses, opening verses of Philippians, Paul makes clear that he loves the you all of the church of Philippi. And what we see in verses 7 through 8 and then 9 through 11 is Paul's affection in verses 7 through 8 And then with that affection comes direction for the church in Philippi in verses 9 through 11. And we can be convicted by that reoccurring phrase, you all, and then grow through the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the Word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, just by looking at all of the things that bring Paul to this affection for you all, or for the church in Philippi. Before verse 7 is, of course, verse 6, which we looked at last week, and I think that's very helpful to remember. As we said last week, verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1, it changes everything about everything. And it informs us as to how Paul can have such a magnitude of affection for the church in Philippi. He doesn't just see them as they are. He doesn't just see them as the sinners that they are in themselves or just as uh, reason, as problems to address. It's not even how he sees them first and foremost. He'll get to that in the letter, as we'll see. But he begins with this grace-informed understanding of Philippi, saying that he is confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we tap into the verse from last week to begin and understand Paul's affection for this church. He sees them as a work in progress. He sees them as trophies of God's grace, of grace cases that will one day glorify the grace of God 
that has been shown to them in Jesus Christ. But he does more than that. We've already seen in verse 5 that he understands the members of this Philippian church as being in participation in the gospel. You think of the Apostle Paul and all that he did for the gospel, being a missionary, a church planter, an author of one-third of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a miracle worker. But he doesn't see himself in a distinct class. He doesn't see himself as a cut above the rest. Instead, he writes to the Philippians and reminds them that they participate in the same gospel as he does. And he picks that idea up again in verse 7, where he says, you all, at the end of the verse, you all are partakers of grace with me. He sees himself as working alongside the Christians in Philippi. And it brings him to an affection. Instead of just seeing them as problems, as sinners in need of correction, he sees them as co-laborers, co-workers, citizens of heaven, as he'll call them later, partakers of grace who participate in the gospel, and the other things he says in verse 7, that they are in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, partakers of grace with him. This brings him to an affection for them. And then finally, you'll, you'll mention, in, you'll see in verse 8, that he doesn't just say, I'm abounding in affection towards you, or I love you with an unquenchable love, or I'm filled with an unquenchable joy. All of those things are true. But look at how he informs the very idea of affection in verse 8, saying, For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Not just affection, but the affection of Christ Jesus. And it gives us an opportunity to stop and consider the affection of the Apostle Paul for the Philippian church. What is the affection of Christ Jesus. Maybe we begin with the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And we begin to realize that this affection of Christ Jesus extends beyond our sins, our imperfections, our unholiness that it is an affection, a form informed by grace, as we've already seen. I think maybe we have a summary of the affection of Christ Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where the author of Hebrews says to you, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's an affection there, isn't there? That Jesus Christ could, could go to the cross 
and bear the sins of His own people and know that it was for the joy set before Him. Looking forward, not stopping at the sin, the unholiness, the problems, the rebellion, the wickedness that is true of each one of us, but looking beyond that and saying it is worth enduring even the cross for the joy set before me, for the glory of what these sinners will become through my atonement, through my sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, through my death on the cross, through the divine blood I shed to save sinners. I think that informs our idea of affection and enables us with the Apostle Paul to look at the you all of the church and not stop with the problems, not stop with the sin, the hypocrisy, the grievances, the things that irritate us, the things that stick in our craw, the things that become pet peeves. We don't stop there. We look beyond to the joy set before us. We realize that in the meantime, there might be a cross, there is a cross to bear. But for that joy set before us, we can endure the cross and develop a real and true affection, the affection of Christ Jesus, seeing that these sinners that surround us are sinners saved by grace, partakers of grace, participating with us in the gospel, and will one day be brought to perfection on the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul doesn't just say he has an affection and leave us in the cold, but lays out for us in the surrounding verses a way to that same affection. And I just want to commend to each of you and to myself as well, as convicting as it is to hear Paul's affection for you all, let's aspire to the affection of Christ Jesus. If you're an elder, have the affection of Christ Jesus for the sheep in your shepherding group. If you're a deacon, have the affection of Christ Jesus for the sheep in your shepherding group. If you are not an elder or a deacon, pray that your elders and deacons might have the affection of Christ Jesus. And labor, work, apply yourself, devote yourself to having the affection of Christ Jesus that is able to look at the church and say, you all are in my heart. I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you all. I see what Jesus is alive and at work doing in you, what will surely come to pass by the time of the day of the Lord. I see that you are partakers of grace and participators in the gospel, citizens of heaven and co-laborers in Christ. And it's a fascinating thing that happens with affection if you stop to think about it. You probably realize this the most when it comes to family members that you care a great deal about, especially your children, that as you have affection, as you can look at somebody and say, you are in my heart, 
It is on you that I find happiness and joy and thanksgiving. You are always there. I have an affection for you. You cannot divorce that affection from a direction for that person. You want what is best for them. You consider their circumstance. You think forward for them. And as I said, this probably happens mostly between parents and children. We have an affection for our children, and we observe them and think about the opportunities that we want for them, the ways we want them to grow and develop, the way we want them to progress and prosper. We want that direction for them. And then as Christians, that direction becomes expressed through prayer. We don't stop at wanting certain things for our children, and we pray that the Lord would provide those things for them, that the Lord would bless them in the direction that we desire for them. And that's exactly what we see Paul do in verse 9. His affection is followed up by a prayer that they would move in a certain direction. And in verse 10, you see what all of that builds up to. It's all in order that this Philippian church will, on the day of Christ, be sincere and blameless. There's a number of things we should note here. Maybe first thing we should note is where Paul's emphasis is for these Philippian church members. He doesn't say all of these things and then say, because what I want for you is staggering numerical church growth so that you become a mega church with many campuses. He doesn't say, I want this for you as the first step in establishing world peace. He doesn't say, what I want for you is a political revolution in which the evil Roman emperor is overthrown. He doesn't say, what I want for you is health, wealth, and prosperity. Instead, he expresses what he wants in gospel terms. He has spiritual designs on these people, and it's so important to think about that. Paul loves these people. He's enraptured in joy over them. He has them in his heart. He is, uh, has the affection of Christ for them, but the highest good he could want for them isn't numerical growth, world peace, political revolution, or even personal health and wealth but is at every turn an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this grace that he has spoken about, this good news that he has spoken about, this assurance of pardon that he has laid out in verse 6. Here's how he speaks about this participation in the gospel, partaking of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Your love, he wants, he says, he wants to abound still more and more with real knowledge and discernment so that they go about approving the things that are excellent, having been filled 
verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ our Lord, surrounding his desire that they prove themselves sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. He surrounds it with three ways to get to that point of sincere, pure blamelessness on the day of Christ. He mentions abounding in love with knowledge and discernment. Not just love for love's sake, not just love because it sounds good, not just all you need is love, but love with knowledge and discernment, with theological understanding, loving what God loves, hating what God hates, not coming to peace with sin, seeing sin as the terror that it is, seeing the corruption in creation as something that ruins God's good design, but then still abounding in love. And that word love is the New Testament word agape. And I think it's really helpful just to uh, always refresh your memory when it comes to the word agape in the New Testament. Here's what uh, Leon Morris, a commentator, says. This Greek word was not in common use before the New Testament. But the Christians took it up and made it their characteristic word for love. Whereas the highest concept of love before the New Testament was that of a love for the best one knows, the Christians thought of love as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from God who is love, a love lavished on others without a thought as to whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. You see what's going on there? Paul uses this word agape, and it redefines love itself in light of the cross of Christ, who looked on sinners who were persecuting him, putting him to death, watching him bleed and laughing about it. But there from the cross he prays, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's a love that comes from God who is love, extended towards the unlovely. What could be more unlovely than putting to someone to death on the cross and laughing at them as they are tortured to death? But the love of God is extended from Christ to the altogether unlovely through his prayer that they would be forgiven. And Paul brings that idea of love to this Philippian church and says, I want that kind of love to be abounding among you more and more. You can't have too much of it. And if you think about what that abounding sort of love means, not something lovely about the beloved, but a love that comes from your nature in Christ, you realize that's how Paul could say I 
have the affection of Christ Jesus for you all. Even if you're entirely unlovely in yourself. And it brings to mind the second chapter of Philippians that we'll get to eventually where Paul says, have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have a love even for the unlovely. Let this love that we see so perfectly in the cross of Christ abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Approving things that are excellent, this other way to develop sincere blamelessness before God. Approve things that are excellent or discover things that are excellent. I think here this verse is um, picked up in a beautiful way at the end of Philippians. And we see in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul sort of develops what he says here, not just discover things that are excellent, but then chapter 4, verse 8, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Discover what is excellent. Don't fill your mind with negative trash day in and day out, hour after hour. And that's what's offered by so many sources. No, look it out for what is excellent. Guard what goes into your mind. Dwell upon what is beautiful, excellent, noble, of good repute. Things that are edifying, encouraging, uplifting, hopeful. These are things that you need to fill your mind with. Your diet needs to consist of those things. And then verse 11. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness here. I think it's fascinating to consider Philippians as written towards the end of the Apostle Paul's life. He's already written 1 Corinthians that opens up to us what love is, what agape is. Love is patient, love is kind. So when he says, let love be abounding, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and read all about what love is. And when he says the fruit of righteousness, you don't need to say, now I wonder what he means by the fruit of righteousness. He's already written by this point the book of Galatians where we read the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you see what Paul is doing here. Through this agape love, through the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, by meditating and discovering and approving the things that are excellent, the Holy Spirit works in you draws you along in holiness, makes you progress on your pilgrimage one step after another, after another, becoming gradually more and more holy, more and more upright. And there's a beautiful juxtaposition here. What you see in verse 6 as an assurance that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Nonetheless, demands your activity, 
your dedication so that you will be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, which is what we read in verse 10. And I don't want you to be thrown by that. I think we can come to words like that, being sincere and blameless on the day of Christ, and see that this is what Paul is after. Purity, genuineness, even blamelessness. And we could think for a moment maybe, is Paul taking away in verse 10 what he has given us in verse 6? He assures us that this God who's at work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But then he says, I want you to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ through abounding love, discovering things that are excellent, and having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And what you see there is God's logic instead of ours. You see, we read Philippians 1.6, and we love the assurance as we ought to, and we'd be hopeless without it, so we do right to rejoice in it and love it. But our immediate conclusion is, well, God's going to bring this to, be- to pass. I'm off the hook. I don't need to worry about the day of the Lord because I have God's promise right here that he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But that's not God's logic. That's our logic. The logic that we are confronted with throughout Scripture is that, yes, God is divinely sovereign and we have every reason for assurance. But because we have the assurance of what we know will one day come to pass, we look to the present and rejoice in being already different, already transformed, already changed, new hearts with new life as new creation. And you notice that these words here in verse 10, it doesn't say that you would be found completely sinless. Instead, sincere, pure, blameless. I want to challenge you to think in those terms, even as a sinner. Paul was a sinner who would say he was the chief of sinners. And he didn't say, before salvation, I was the chief of sinners. He said he was presently the chief of sinners. But he calls you to sincerity and blamelessness. I think we need go no further than the Lord's Prayer itself to understand what this means. As sinners saved by grace, assured of our final perfection on the great day of the Lord, we recognize that we're still sinners. But we have the Lord's Prayer itself to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And by praying that, do you see you're sincere? You're pure. You're blameless because you're forgiven. It's not saying you're spotlessly, uh, spotless and righteous and perfectly holy in this life. It's saying you're blameless and sincere, asking God to forgive you your sins, even as you forgive others. 
and you can rejoice in the perfection that will be yours on the day of Christ, even as you strive more and more to appear on that day blameless and sincere. Then to wrap up these opening verses of the book of Philippians, Paul says something similar to what he says in the book of Romans. Of him and to him and through him are all things. So we read in the verse, verse 11, to the glory which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Think of all that we've thought about and discussed and talked about. The love of God abounding, having that mind of Christ in us, having the very affection of Christ, being partakers of grace with the Apostle Paul, participators in the gospel with him, having an abounding love and knowledge and discernment, even for you all, approving things, discovering things, meditating on things that are excellent, seeing the fruit of righteousness and seeing more and more of it as we grow in grace and recognizing this is not by any human design. This is God's redemptive plan. This is God's plan of salvation for you and for each member of his church. It is to his glory. It is to the praise of God. It is the reason we unite together and worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would draw us along, encourage us, even as we see verse 6 as such wonderful assurance, as an unshakable promise, a promise beyond our performance, we pray that we would also look at verse 10, see our responsibility and delight in knowing that because you are the God who forgives, even as sinners, we can be blameless and sincere before you. Fill our hearts with worship. Fill our hearts with every desire to glorify and praise you for the wonders that you have done, are doing, and continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.